Okay, good evening, everyone. So we're going to begin Iowa City City Council's work session for Tuesday, October the 15th. And our first topic is to review the Riverfront Crossings District form-based code changes recommended by Opticos and to discuss possible changes to the density bonus provisions and height allowances. Jeff, I think you plan to say a few words at the start. Yeah, just do a quick introduction. Hopefully most of the time with the work session is, is spent uh, um, listening to, to your discussion. Um, the Riverfront Crossings uh, form-based code um, was adopted in 2014. Uh, and um, I, I think we all thought it was going to be successful, but uh, we've had probably uh, over $200 million worth of investment in the riverfront crossings area since that code was adopted. Uh, and as council knows, there's several additional projects in the, in the various uh, stages of legislative approvals. So with um, 14 uh, buildings produced under the code earlier this year, uh, we thought it was a good time to assess uh, the results that were being uh, produced by the code. And so we uh, tagged on a scope to Opticos's work. If you recall, Opticos is the consultant that's doing the form-based code for us in the South District. Uh, they have extensive expertise in, in urban form-based codes as well. So we asked them to take a look at that as an independent third party and give us some feedback. Um, uh, they have completed that and that memo is in your information packet. Um, it's important to note that prior to them getting started, the staff held a focus group with the architects, engineers, and developers that were involved in uh, many of those, those first 14 projects. So we got a lot of feedback from them on what was working well, what wasn't, and, and we prov provided that to the Opticos team so that they would have some foundation of understanding of, of what the what the folks that uh, have been working in the code felt um, ab about uh, about it. Um, uh, again, you've seen the Opticos report. I think uh, uh, some takeaways that you can, they have a summary up front and then it's more detailed uh, uh, later on in the memo. Uh, uh, certain code standards are not necessarily are not necessary to achieve quality buildings was, was that first finding. And this is pretty technical stuff. They, they get into things like step backs, facade competition, upper story height, roof design, et cetera. Those were some issues that they think we, we either need to drop those code requirements or uh, modify them in a way, uh, provide some more administrative flexibility um, to, uh, to work with those, um, uh, again, certain code aspects. Um, the feeling was, and this was largely coming from those focus groups, is that uh, some of those very specific standards may be limiting and, and uh, really unnecessary and may not recognize different types of architecture, different scales of buildings and that sort of thing. And I think staff would agree with a lot of this, that we found uh, during design review that we would certainly like to have a little bit more flexibility um, in working with some of these very specific code parameters that Quite honestly, in a lot of cases, maybe the average person wouldn't even uh, notice uh, on, a, uh, on a project. The second and third uh, components of that uh, memo, um, the summary piece, um, would kind of, I lump them together. It's either uh, confusing content or uh, just the general usability of the code uh, as they read it for the first time uh, and knowing that architects and engineers, many of whom are reading them for the first or second time, just had trouble tracking some of that stuff. So there's some cleanup there that, that we think uh, needs to happen. 
Um, but there are some more substantive recommendations in there, like reducing the number of sub-districts um, and combining some of those where there's very minor differences between uh, some of them, and also clarification uh, of the height bonuses, so it's very transparent on, on what um, height allowances may be on a particular uh, parcel of land. And then lastly, uh, they noted um, the uh, kind of unique position that we're in in which we didn't uh, rezone the entire district up front. And uh, that's, not, that's not typical. Uh, typically when you uh, would adopt a new or work on a new zoning code, you would rezone the entire area to that and, and thus you wouldn't have as many individual applications as you see. Um, we struggle with that because Part of uh, what we look to do in the rezoning is make sure that we have um, required right away, for example, for public improvement projects. So the easy example is along South Gilbert, when we've seen a lot of redevelopment, we've been requiring some dedication of right of way so that we could make a future street improvement to, to Gilbert. Um, and, and without that rezoning, uh, we don't believe that we would have the ability to, to do that as easily. So. Um, I'd say for the most part, Opticos staff is, is or the Opticos report is is fairly speaks to fairly technical components of the code. Um, what we want to do is give council an opportunity to weigh in. If there are some of these topics that they've identified that you want to have a discussion on at a, at a policy level, um, that's great. And I think if you can identify those today, you don't necessarily need to get through those discussions today, but tell us what those aspects are. And then on the other items, we'll just put those into our, our workload and we'll get to them probably sometime in, in 2020 would be our goal is for some, again, administrative um, uh, changes um, uh, uh, that address the other comments. So that's part one. And then part two uh, of the discussion tonight deals specifically with the height bonus provisions. And this wasn't anything that we asked Opticos to look at. We didn't ask them to judge whether height bonuses uh, were, were too generous or not generous enough or appropriate in the sub-district or not. Um, uh, but we're prepared to have that discussion with you tonight. Um, we do have um, a slide that, that we, can, we can pull up um, now. If we, Danielle, if you want to go ahead and pull that up, just to show you what height bonuses that we have awarded uh, in the first four years. And so um, I'll walk through these really quickly, uh, and hopefully you can see them. The ones in yellow are your level two design review that uh, the council has approved. And uh, I'll note that the first one, 316 Madison, was never built. Um, so we approved a 15-story uh, building there. And as you know, that, um, uh, th that did not, um, that did not um, happen. That's an eight-story building, which they were permitted by right. So really, we've, we've uh, as, as a council, you've granted three height bonuses. Uh, Tate Arms, which was a single-story uh, height bonus for historic preservation. And then you have two hotel height bonuses, the Rise. Uh, they got seven stories of height bonus for the Hyatt Place Hotel and the Hilton Garden Inn. Uh, so really the only significant <coughs> height bonus that's been granted to uh, that, that's added a lot of residential units would be the Rise. They got seven stories for the hotel, but that also allowed them to do a larger um, apartment uh, offering as well. Hilton Garden Inn does not have any residential units. Again, the Tate Apartments was one floor. 
Uh, and then the one right below that is the Breckenridge Apartments. This is one that the council recently rezoned uh, just south of the railroad tracks on Dubuque uh, that, that uh, was just finished uh, this summer. Uh, they had a level one request, which again does not go to council, just goes to staff, and that was for one story, and they uh, used the public art provision for that. That was an interesting case in that that one story didn't actually provide them a number of units. It, it had to do with the, the grade of the, um, uh, of the project, and there was... Uh, they have underground parking, and there was enough of their underground parking exposed that it, it qualified as an above-ground story. Uh, so they actually had to uh, get a, a height bonus floor awarded um, to, to allow them to proceed with what was their original concept that you saw at the rezoning stage. So to summarize, uh, we've had uh, 13 floors of bonus height uh, provided over four projects and only one of those projects provided significant additional residential units. Uh, staff is here, we can, we can answer uh, more questions. We can go through the specific uh, menu of options uh, if you want to when it comes to height bonuses, but again, we thought it was best that uh, this, you all kind of lead this discussion from here. Thanks, Jeff. You know, uh, we're the, the density transfer and height bonus materials on this work session because I asked to have it put on and also because we had agreed to put it on our pending list anyhow, so it seemed like a good combination. So I'd like to briefly summarize a little bit of what I put in the memo that I think all of you received yesterday, uh, the memo I sent to you yesterday. Uh, so, in brief, uh, I completely agree with Jeff that almost all the recommendations contained in Perez's memo sound, look very reasonable, but they're of such a technical nature that we should defer to the staff about them and work their way through them. There's another point that I'd like to highlight that I, th I understand Perez to be making, and that is that that the um, Riverfront Crossings District Master Plan involved a great deal of public participation, but that was not true for the form-based code that was adopted in 2014. There was some review. I mean, we certainly had public hearing uh, here at the council level, but it did not involve the same degree of public participation as the Riverfront Crossings District Master Plan process involved. And then I would suggest this, and I'm just, I just want to put my values out front and then you all will do with it what you want. But if we want the district to achieve the objectives of the Riverfront Crossings District Master Plan and, and become a walkable, mixed-use neighborhood, then I would strongly urge the council to reconsider the density transfer and height bonus provisions of the form-based code for two main reasons. First, circumstances have changed, and secondly, Council's priorities now, and I think probably in the next council, differ from the council's priorities back in 2014. So in terms of changes in circumstances, I'd, I'd point to uh, we've now, we now have two major new hotels completed and operating and so on that did not exist back then. And the Graduate Hotel is but it is a revamped version of the Sheraton, and there are two other, there's one other boutique hotel that's nearing completion in the Chauncey. So there's a lot more hotel capacity than there used to be. Uh, the second 
circumstance, change in circumstances is that there, there, uh, we now have a large number of new housing units for students. That was not the case back then. A third is that there's now considerable uncertainty about the university's plans concerning future enrollments and concerning what it's going to do with second year students, whether they be living on campus or not. And we adopted a climate crisis resolution. So I think those are major changes in circumstances that need to be taken into account. And with that, uh, that's pretty much all I need to say. I gave you the memo. I'm sure you had a chance to take a look at it. And now we need to hear from you. So what are your thoughts in terms of what Jeff has said? And do we have questions? Do you want to give, them, give the staff direction or what? I guess I have one question. I guess I don't mean this rhetorically. In terms of the climate crisis piece of this, um, what part of the climate crisis piece would lead us to want lower density in this particular district as opposed to higher density? So I, I and I'm just, mm -hmm. what would be the reason for that? Well, I'll provide yeah. a partial answer. Okay. I think the key thing has to do with the lead provision of the height bonus section in the form-based code. It's, in my judgment, quite ambiguous <clears throat> okay. about what's actually required or what would warrant, I should say, what would warrant a height bonus. Uh, and I think we should be uh, providing height bonuses for major um, enhancements of energy efficiency for any new building that gets a height bonus. Okay. All right, so that's one thing. The second with, is with regard to density. Partially, I'd say that taller buildings above eight stories are, are uh, much more energy intensive to build mm -hmm. than, than shorter buildings are. And even if there are shorter buildings down there um, in terms of new buildings, a, a, a major um, increase in density would still result. So it, it's not as if it's an either-or kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Well, I would say in regard to Opticos memo, um, I, I would agree, I think, kind of what Jeff was saying is a lot of this, is, and what you said, Jim, is a lot of this is pretty technical. I didn't see anything in particular as I looked through it from a policy standpoint that I had issues with at this point. And so I think I would be comfortable with taking um, those ABCD or ABC sections and um, essentially giving those to staff and saying, you folks take a look through them and see what your thoughts are, where things can be um, changed around. And, and, I, and I would agree with a lot of what they said in terms of the difficulty of following and reading the code. And um, and I'm one of those people, I like charts and graphs and stuff. And I, and I think their idea of getting rid of a lot of the text and replacing it where possible with, with graphs and charts and stuff to make things easier for people to get all the information they need in one spot mm -hmm. um, would be very helpful. So I, I don't see most of that as um, as policy issues, but more, and, and there may be some, but most of it is really, I think, making the code more usable. Um, the question that I do have would be on Part D and the rezoning, and, and I fully understand, and we talked a lot about that at council, 
when we did the original rezoning of 20 to 25 acres down there, that that area was specifically selected because we felt that there was not anything that the city needed, if you will, out of those properties. And so yeah. for the city to initiate that rezoning was fine. We didn't do things like you know, East uh, Court, East Court Street, because we wanted to reopen Capitol. And as as Jeff just mentioned, um, the additional right of way along South Gilbert. I guess my question would be: At this point, would there be a reasonable and feasible way of going ahead and the city initiating the rezoning of the rest of the area? And it might have to be a number of different rezonings because I understand there still are things that we want out of some of those properties. Mm -hmm. But would it be possible for staff to identify what it is we want, where is it that we need right of way, either like along South Gilbert or where is it that we are going to need right of way for other kinds of infrastructure, water lines, sewer lines or whatever. Um, and would it be reasonable or feasible for us to initiate those rezonings with those conditions in there? Obviously, we'd have to get the property owners to sign off on them. Maybe it's way too big a project. I think it's. I think what we need to do as staff, you know, the initial mass rezoning that we did was was four years ago, five years ago. Um, we just need to spend more time and look at the remaining properties and go through that analysis again, yeah. and then we could probably answer that a little bit better. But I think from a staff standpoint, we agree that in normal circumstances, it's it's good to go ahead and rezone these. Um, there was just so much need down there for public improvements, so that's probably part part of our 2020 work plan uh, with with the whole look at RFC is to go through and see if there's a second round um, of, of a larger rezoning that we could do. And I realize with workload of staff that may not yeah. be possible. It's, it's not the top priority, yeah. but it's, it's something we need to do. I know that you're wanting a really good council um, take on, you know, everything that's been presented. And I guess from my perception, um, and I, I know the mayor talked about needing the getting the public input. I do think that that's something that we have to do as we're going through this. So because one of the things that I've since, you know, I'm a little new to council within the past year, um, when we're talking about like the bonuses and all that other, all those other items related to um, how they can get high bonuses, essentially, um, I think it's important for neighbors to know upfront um, staff to know up front um, exactly what will be that max. Um, and so I know that when Opticos was here, I believe it was, it was in July, they talked about actually starting with the end in mind, saying if it's going to be max of 15, it's up front. Like this is what you can get and you can go down. Um, from there. And so I believe that it's important that um, we get to a place where I would encourage staff to kind of really think about this. How can we get to a place where um, we get the public involvement as well as staff and um, all interested parties' involvement to find out, like, 
what would be that max in this area and, and, and include that in whatever's created. PNZ and council being in the position to um, always debate about the height, I don't think that's good mm -hmm. for staff and developers. Um, to have these conversations about that, I don't think that's good. And again, we have the you know public and the you know the neighbors that's coming and saying, some say they don't want it, some say they do want it. And so, I, I believe that now is a great opportunity for us to step back and to really figure out that what would be the max height um, in 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 certain areas or uh, for each property. As far as um, I heard Susan talk about, you know. Um, maybe some some conditions and stuff like that uh, with whatever we create. I believe that the council as well as, um, I, I believe that we should have the ability to have conditions. Um, so I'm not sure how policy can be written with more concrete expectations. Also with allowing council to come and say, hey, um, we want some, um, the ability to have conditions as well, um, whether we is something that the city wants or council wants or the neighbors presented something that we didn't think about when we were creating this more of a concrete type of a, um, a situation. Um, and then there is also loopholes um, within whatever may be created. So if we had, you know, the ability to, to do conditions as we do now, then whatever loophole we didn't think about, we'll be able to, you know, present it within a, some type of addition. As far as my values uh, that I want to express, I think that uh, climate crisis is, is very important when we're looking at this. Um, if, if we're going to be able to achieve what we are doing here as a council, we're going to have to um, be a little more progressive and what we require from um, new development um, from developers as well as um, when we're talking about the you know the the percentage of houses you know for a high bonus um, again I've said time and time again how I'm yes I believe that it is great that our previous council has made provisions for affordable housing to be a part of the riverfront crossing area. And also the, the fee in lieu of, I, I, I kind of get that concept. Um, I struggle with that concept a little bit because, you know, in fee of lieu of can definitely pay to keep someone out of, you know, this, this, this property. And so I do struggle with that because what, you know, what are we trying to achieve? If we're really trying to achieve um, that there'll be mixed use units of affordability and market rate uh, properties, then I think we have to be really careful of how we move forward with, you know, saying that someone can do a, a fee in lieu of housing. Um, I think that there's a there could be an underlying message for uh, some people. Um, just buy them out; they don't have to be here. Um, so I, I would just tread very carefully of trying to reinstitute something like that. The other thing, you know, we have a 10-year where people have to, or whatever they agree to, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Well, at some point, um, 40 years down the line, 
all of this will be filled. There won't be any more hype bonuses, and everybody would have met their, um, they would have met their affordability period. And so that affordability period will be gone. And what do we expect is going to happen to those affordable housings or properties? They will not be there. And that doesn't mean to say that any landlord or it is um, being mean. They don't have a heart. It is <laughs> just numbers, you know. Um, they're going to take it to market value because that's what they can do. Many of them will, is my prediction. Now, there could be some that keep it. Um, whether they keep it, it doesn't make them an angel. Whether they don't, it doesn't mean they're the devil. Um, I think it's just something that, as a council, we have to look at. Most of the developers and the landlords will not keep the affordable units after the affordability period. So I, I do think that we need, need to look at that very carefully and figure out how can we have um, Perpetuity? Did I say that right? <laughs> Perpetuity. Perpetuity. Yeah, Perpetuity. It's an interesting uh, word. <laughs> I know. I just have to spit it out. Yeah. Um, you know, affordable housing forever. Again, I think that um, there are ways that we can partner with other agencies, and I'm going to mess up the name, Johnson County Housing Coalition. Trust that right? Fund. Trust Fund. I think there's ways that we can, you know, reach out to them to help us meet some of those uh, goals. But nevertheless, I wanted to just give staff and um, some of what you've asked us to do is just give us our thoughts and opinions. So I'm going to do a Kingsley and agree and disagree with some points that have been already made. I always love that. Thank you, Kingsley, for that. Um, so I'm going to agree and disagree with one thing you said. You said that there are people in the public that support and some that are against some of what, what has been happening in Riverfront Crossing and generally related to height. At least as far as I've been able to observe in terms of who comes up to the podium and in terms of as it's expressed in public opinion pieces and these sorts of things, I have not seen a lot of public robust opposition to what is currently being done in the Riverfront Crossing District. So that's where I'm disagreeing with you a little bit. I think you were trying to be fair sure. and saying some people agree, some people disagree. But at least as far as I can tell, I have not observed that. Now, certainly I think there has been some private grumbling about what we're seeing there, but it has not manifested itself in significant opposition saying that it should be changed. Now, if you're watching out there and you don't like what's happening there, I encourage people to speak out. And I say that because I think our role as I see it is to administer this plan consistently with what its initial objectives were. Um, and of course, to put our views in, but I view, as, I view us as almost guardians of that plan unless and until we observe significant structural problems with what's going on. I mean, are projects being built? Or two, unless there's significant public outcry to cause us to push the pause button and say, do we need to reconsider this? Um, as far as I can tell, so far, we have $200 million of investment already done. And on the horizon, we have upwards of two to $250 million in the pipeline. So in terms of the economics of what has been originally designed, I'm very pleased in terms of this plan coming to fruition. So I think we should be very cautious about making any changes unless and until we think that there are significant public defects with this plan. Um, with Mayor, I'm totally in agreement that the hotel issue does need to be reevaluated. I would agree that the staff, and I think reaching out to Josh Schomberger and various members of the public, 
we do seem to, in terms of our hotel capacity, be reaching a, certainly a, a significant number of hotels. And I think what has made Mr. Schomburger's comments particularly persuasive is that it's been data-driven. I mean, he's been looking at the numbers, I know staff is looking at the numbers, and to the extent that there are developers that do want to add additional hotel space, I think that should be more market-driven. But I think any change that we make should be vetted through staff, and then, of course, to signal to the public, if they're members of the public think we don't have enough, I think we should take that into consideration. And related to what the mayor said, I also think we do need to evaluate whether there are additional green incentives that we can place um, in terms of what we're doing there. Um, the final thought, I think, to what Susan said, I'm going to agree on something, and I'm not going to disagree with anything she said so far. Um, the clarity and usability, certainly I think we want to make this as user-friendly as we can, and so I I think for staff to go and review the technical recommendations to make it simpler, both for the public as well as the developers to understand, I mean, that's, that's sort of a duh. In terms of the final recommendation, um, one of the opticos, as far as I can tell, is to confer more administrative authority to our staff. I think that that is something that possibly we should look at. But before we do that, I think it's important that we signal to the public uh, that we do want to confer more authority to staff and that the public weigh in. Because, of course, one of the things about doing that is we lose, to some degree, the public oversight um, in terms of the zoning process. Um, to Susan's point relating to um, possibly looking at the district as a whole, assuming we can navigate the complexities of, you know, do we need any public right-of-way? Um, I would just defer to staff as far as that goes. But I think the, the final comment is, is that I, I do think that it's very important that we're only three weeks away from an election. Um, I want to spend some time on it to give some guidance to staff, but I also think it's important to wait for the results of that election and making sure that we're not, you know, putting staff time in something that there may be a zig um, to our zag. And I just think it's important that we proceed cautiously before we make any significant direction to staff um, on that particular issue. So that's where I'm coming down. If I um, could make one point, yes. Rockney, uh, there's a distinction between the plan yeah. and the code. Yes. The plan was adopted in 2013, the code in 2014, and I would suggest that the um, code greatly enhanced the densities yeah. called for by the plan. Yep. So almost double. Yep. All right. So. It's a distinction that matters, it seems to me. Well, the only rejoinder to that would be, though, is did the same consulting company that did the plan, did they also do our code? Was it the same consulting firm or was it a different no. one? No. No different. Okay. okay. Uh, Sorry, Miles. Okay. For me, in terms of optical, after cause, the report is, I think, is good, it's good to go. But talking about the density transfer and, and the height points, and I, I really agree with the mayor about the hotels, and there is a lot, number, like number of student housing being there, and we need to talk about that. And also for the crime crisis adoption, I, it, it needs to be one of them since we declared the city like uh, climate action crisis here. That's why we need to add this somehow for, for the height ponies. But to talk about what the, I agree with the pros about the affordable housing. I think so, like while we are making change for this, for the density transfer and height bonus, we need also to look at the affordable housing piece to it, and we need to really uh, review 
what we mean by affordable and what we need to see there. Because as he said, he just uh, you know we need something that affordable for forever permanent, and uh, also you know I, I just think even if it's affordable for me, I, I, I just think like furnished apartment that affordable is still not affordable. And maybe we need to look into that. Because, for example, if we need a family to live there, that, that means they have to rent by room. Two bedroom apartment will be two room. Each room will be around uh, like more than 700. And uh, this is will put like two bedroom apartment furnished become like more than $1,500. Uh, I don't know how can we look into that, but we need an ideas for that. For me, it's like really fee and low is the way to go. But if we can figure out another like way to make it permanent affordability, in the same time we have to look into like furnishing. There is many many student housing there, <coughs> and I don't want to see this area only just for students. We need also the city residents uh, to live there too. This is really be beautiful part of the city, close by the downtown, and uh, I want to see also family able to find, you know, some places there to live. So. Yes, uh, I hope we can making the affordable housing changing while we are doing this as well. That's my recommendation. Thanks. I agree with the, the mayor's concern that uh, the comp plan received uh, plenty of time and consideration, but the form-based code didn't receive as much attention. And now it is causing us some, some headaches, and so it is important, I think, at some point that, that we do revisit that a, as soon as we can. And to Rockney's point about the uh, public robots um, and not hearing negative things about the uh, height of building and what's going in riverfront crossings. Uh, you and I obviously run in different circles. Uh, I, I've got some senior years on you, and I obviously hang out in, in the senior community, the, the senior center, senior exercise class, senior potlucks, and everywhere, almost every week, somebody comes up to me, uh, someone who's been in the community a long time, and says, what is going on uh, with those, those buildings and the riverfront crossings area? So I think you're hearing from different folks than I am, because I'm hearing the other side of that. Um, and then I would like to weigh in on the bonuses since that does go along with the height of things and I've questioned this all along as, as why we set a maximum height and then have provisions for additional height that, that suits the surrounding area. Uh, I think I've previously made it clear that I'm not a fan of, of bonuses that are given for things that I believe should have been standard in the first place for the development, uh, but instead are disguised as uh, providing public benefit for the quality and character of the neighborhood. Uh, one prime example of that is the height bonus for uh, leadership and environmental design, said to be designed to meet high standards with regard to energy efficiency and environmental stewardship. Of course, this is admirable and an important standard to have, <clears throat> but with all the talk about the urgency of our need for climate action, I believe this should be what all developers should strive for without <coughs> even being given a bonus for it. They really should be thinking about this uh, as they're designing the buildings. And as a healthcare provider, now you'll have to bear with me on this, uh, I like to look at it this way. I also love food. So uh, uh, you go to the doctor and you're told that uh, in, it's in your best interest uh, of your health to, to lose some weight. And in order to do that, you need to start eating less food. 
uh, but you love pizza. And he tells you that the maximum number of slices uh, you can have are, are two slices. So you go home and you order a pizza. You have the two slices, but then you tell yourself that you deserve a bonus because you walked 10,000 steps that day, and then you think you need another bonus because you did 10 sit-ups. So before you know it, you've eaten half of the pizza. So you, you, you've now shattered your doctor's plans for your good health. Or uh, uh, parents will appreciate this, since Halloween is coming up, uh, your, your children have this big bag of treats from Halloween. They spread it all out on the floor, which they always do, and want to dig in. And you tell them they can have four pieces, or they'll spoil their supper. But they tell you that they made their beds, picked up their rooms, and got an A at school. So before you know it, they've had at least six pieces of candy, and of course, do not feel like eating supper. So what's the moral? How does this connect to height bonuses? Well, I believe uh, if you set a standard and stick to it, don't keep adding on to it. That's all I have to say. Well, I, my involvement with this, this zoning and the, and the master plan goes, does go back to planning and zoning. I served on the commission when this came through. And I was in, an enthusiastic supporter of the master plan. And then when the regulating plan came before us, you know, and as Opticos noted, um, you know, I went through the regulating plan, seemed fine, and then sort of at the very end of the report or the document is the, the bonus height provision. And the bonus height provision did basically, as, as Jim said, double the allowable density pretty much across all the sub-districts. And I think it's always important to try to remember that the, 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 the development scenarios that were developed in the, in the master plan were based on a market analysis of commercial and, and residential demand anticipated in, in this area over the next, let's say, 20 years. So it was a, it was a really market-driven concept. It had really, it wasn't, well, sh what, what should the heights of the buildings be? It was really the heights of the buildings should be tied to that market demand. And that's what's basically reflected in the base building heights. So to, to suddenly double it without any uh, you know, rationale for it with respect to what the demand for that extra building height, I, th I felt was really quite questionable. Um, so I didn't support it. And I, I must say, it, even in not supporting it, I didn't realize how that might play out. I mean, there, you know, there are certain sites which really can take advantage of, of the bonus heights uh, in ways that I certainly hadn't anticipated. So I, I appreciate how Jim has framed this because, in a sense, you know, what what it does is it it sort of points at the bonus heights as being uh, the concern, and, and in part it is, I think, driven by, you know the circumstances that we've seen that have begun to address some of the bonus height, bonus height provisions. Um, so that's one aspect of it. But I would also say that, you know, most of my thinking on this up until relatively recently has been driven more by urban planning uh, principles. That's really how the plan was developed. It's my training. It's how we, you know, on planning and zoning tend to um, consider these things. Uh, but what I've gone, really begun to appreciate is, is, it, is the relationship of what I might call equity and climate to the same 
the same considerations. Jim touched on it uh, with respect to the cost per square foot for building taller buildings. They are more expensive to build. It's not just taller. It's not just providing more capacity. It's more expensive. Uh, and the same goes for the land. When you allow this, this very, you know, this potential of a south downtown district piece of property to either be eight stories or 15 stories, um, there's a big difference in the value of that piece of land as to which way it may go, which also speaks to the, you know, we, we've talked about wanting to take the uncertainty out of our process. Well, that's a big piece of uncertainty right there is what's the value of this piece of property? And so it, it creates a certain amount of speculation in the, in the market. Um, you know, and I just did a quick look at some properties that have sold uh, since you know, since the, uh, the zoning was approved. Uh, 13 South Madison, which, you know, is on the list here. 316. 316, sorry. South Madison. Um, that property in 2014 sold for $1.9 million. It's a 12,000 square foot lot. So the cost per square foot was $158. That's, that's a a high price just to start the project without even starting construction. Uh, another example uh, at the south end of the district is um, 912 South Dubuque. So that's the Clark project next to Tate Arms. Um, that sold, and I'm getting this from the assessor website, in 2014 for $625,000. 15,600 square feet, so the cost per square foot for that property was $40 a square foot. So these, these things make a difference. And um, you couple the, the cost of the land, the cost of construction. Uh, we are baking into these larger projects a higher cost. Uh, and so, so that's a concern. And then with respect to climate, you know, as we've noted, the, um, our standards for that are, are, are really, really need to be uh, revised and, and better articulated. It seems to me that would be a great task for our new Climate Action uh, Commission to, to look at. Um, and, you know, we've talked about, I think we're all aware of how buildings need to be more energy efficient, but in, in and of themselves in terms of heating and cooling. <clears throat> But some of the other factors that I'm seeing being folded into that conversation has to do with the, uh, the, the materials used to build the structures themselves and how much energy they require to fabricate. Um, one way it's talked about is embodied carbon. What is the embodied carbon in those materials? Uh, so, so that's an issue. Um, taller buildings typically require materials of higher carbon content. And then lastly, um, what I'm seeing in, in documents like Vancouver's and elsewhere is that the question of solar access is coming up. So where you have buildings, how is that building affecting the solar rights of adjacent properties? I think I brought this up before. Um, you know, I think that is a really important issue. You know, how, how one piece of property affects the, the, the solar access and rights of the nearby properties. And of course, the taller you go, 
more. the more potential impact those buildings have on the adjacent properties. Um, so, so for all those reasons, to me, it seems very reasonable to, to really put a pause on, on the, um, the bonus heights. And on, on the affordable housing issue, I think you, know, you can see where I, I see that going. And, and I, I'd also say that I, th I feel we put too much emphasis on the, on the set-aside, the inclusionary zoning piece, and not enough on what will the rents be in the building itself. You know, that I like the term attainable housing, you know, that we have workforce housing that I feel hasn't really been uh, addressed very well in the projects that we've seen thus far. So, so the idea of forget about the 10 or 15 percent that's inclusionary and that we may lose in 10 years anyway, what are the rents going to be for the building as a whole? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's. That's my take, and I, I, you know, I, I liked all the details. Um, many of the, the details, you know, we have noticed and have come up on other projects, and I think we've agreed that um, there needs to be some changes. The, the, I think an important piece of this is that review process. You know, if we're going to create thresholds where um, certain projects, if they've, you know. And, and the way I would see this is if we, if, if projects are submitted and they're, they fall under the by right um, size, you know, it's a more administrative process. But if they start looking for bonus sites, if we still allow them in certain ways, that requires a more rigorous analysis. And, and that's the other piece. I don't feel we've had, um, as a council, enough. I haven't felt I've had enough, enough information to adequately assess the impacts of these projects, these bigger projects. Well, folks, I think this has been a very fruitful discussion. I wonder if Jeff, I wonder if you, or maybe Danielle, or Ann, or any, any other key staff per person has any questions that you want to redirect to us that might help you in moving ahead. Um, let me just summarize a little bit of what I've heard, and then um, try to offer a couple of clarifications or reminders. Um, it seems like there's consensus for, for staff to work with the Opticos report, and we'll prioritize that mm -hmm. with everything else. And that'll probably be something um, that the new council uh, after January will take up, mm -hmm. um, most likely even later into to 2020 with some of the other things that we have going on right now. Uh, the attention seems to be focused on the height bonus, no surprise. Um, one thing I'd like to uh, point out on the height bonuses, um, and it's on, I copied the code section uh, if you're looking at the memo uh, that, I, that I have. So at the bottom of the first page of that memo, um, it gives you the uh, allowed height bonus. So I've heard a couple of times we've, we've doubled the effective density. I don't think that's, that that's necessarily um, the case, there are a couple of sub-districts that, that go from eight stories to 15 with the height bonus, uh, but there are districts that only go to 12 stories, eight stories, five stories, and then we have two smaller sub-districts um, that don't allow height bonuses at all. So I think when you get in, we're not, we're not here to have the, the detailed policy discussions, but when you get into those, or maybe as you prep for those, I'd really zero in and I can help you with some maps and. Um, on where those height bonuses are, uh, because they're not equally available throughout the district, and I think you have to understand those those nuances a little bit. And that's part of the policy: are they too high in some areas, 
maybe too low in the others. And then um, I think it's good to look at the menu um, of options that, that, you, that, that we have in the code now and say we prioritize this, we don't prioritize this. Um, but you also have to know that um, it doesn't matter what you put in there if they're not really incentives anyway. Um, you know, we've only had the, the, the projects that you see up there. And really, I would say the hotel piece has probably been the only, you know, the only one that, that, is, that, that folks have really used. We've got one story for historic preservation, one for uh, public art, and the other project wasn't built, so we, we never really know what would have came of, of that building. Uh, so we can put, and, and I certainly ex expected you to talk about the climate crisis, you'll see that in our 100-day report too, that we need to do that, but if we put really strict bonus uh, incentives in there, people just may choose not to use them anyway. So you have to, you kind of have to scale things to, to where the market's going to respond. You know, Class A office space, that's something that we really wanted to push with this code. And we put a bonus in there for Class A office. Well, clearly the market's not ready. Even with that bonus, the market has not been ready to, to produce that, that Class A office. So you kind of have to, to, to think, and this is going to require some uh, external outreach from staff to, to, the, to, to the community, what are those incentives that would really be meaningful? Um, uh, you know, same goes for affordable, uh, the affordable housing provision. We can make it strict. We can make it go in perpetuity or 25% or 30% or certain rents. But as long as you still have this as an elective bonus option, um, people may not choose to do that. So um, as I've heard you talk, um, my takeaways on the height bonus is, is uh, certainly uh, look for ways to adjust it to emphasize the climate crisis and affordable housing, um, hotels, and perhaps um, the bonuses allowable for student housing given the um, uh, amount of student housing that we've seen built and given the university's potential plans may be de-emphasized or, or removed altogether. That's in terms of consistency among your, your comments, that's what I've heard. There's other provisions that, again, we, we may suggest tweaking or removing, you know, Class A office, again, is, is one that I think needs some uh, discussion. Uh, but if, if, I'm, if I'm capturing that correctly, staff can go back and we can, we can uh, begin to work on this piece of it and with a, with a focus of trying to ensure that bonuses um, uh, are responding to the climate crisis and affordable housing above all other things and at some point return to the council with, with uh, some, some suggestions. I think ultimately we'll need to have more work sessions like this to determine the level of height bonus that you're that you're willing to. Jeff, that's, I think you've gotten the the sense of the council on that. Uh, I would suggest a couple other tweaks to it, and I'd like to know if the other council members agree. One is I would recommend a vigorous public engagement process with regard to the height bonuses, so that the public knows what heights are ultimately permitted by whatever comes out of this revisiting of the height bonuses. And uh, the other thing is to keep in mind the, uh, the core objective of the Riverfront Crossings District Master Plan, namely to create a walkable mixed-use neighborhood. Because 
some buildings undermine that kind of neighborhood, others enhance it, and I just think that objective ought to be in mind. Any other comments or uh, advice to Jeff? Yeah, I would agree with the public piece of it. I do think that's really important. The only other comment I would have, I, that has to be a, a knowable um, question that we can get answered, which is this question of energy efficiency and density. There may be varying um, scientific opinions in terms of that, but to the extent that that's not too um, energy intensive for staff, I'd at least like to get that data, because I may be 100% wrong and that we should not be having this hype vis-a-vis -vis carbon reduction emissions, but I would like that sort of information um, for purposes of the discussion. So Just for clarification, Rocky, yeah. are you saying density in the aggregate yeah. or density as in height and composition yeah, of I would the say, buildings? Yeah, I would say in particular related to taller buildings, the impact on the carbon emission. Yeah, so I would say related to carbon emission because I think that that would be helpful because your argument is, is that the higher buildings take more energy to build. To build and presumably to operate because they are bigger, but then to what degree is that offset by the increased density in that particular parcel? So that's my only point, and I may be wrong on that. I mean that, but it strikes me that that should be something we should be able to get more information on. Um, I would say in terms of the mixed use of a piece though, Mayor, um, one thing I am noticing uh, is that it doesn't seem like we've had a lot of um, commercial um, development in terms of first and second floors, yeah. and to some degree that's probably response to all the empty commercial we see and we did the change one of our first acts in 2015 was to change commercial over here over in the parking lot for Augusta Place but it does strike me that that is a concern that there is, doesn't seem to be almost any first floor commercial so we may want to tweak that a little bit or um, you know at least evaluate what's happening there because it does seem to be almost purely residential and that's something we might want to think you about. know on that point Rockney yeah. uh, uh, it seems like a completely valid point to me yeah. but it, I, I wonder what's going on in Coralville when I drive on, what is that street, 5th um, Fifth, Fifth Avenue? Is that mm -hmm. the, the one that, Fifth yeah, yeah. that has all those relatively new, well, new uh, large apartment buildings? Most of their first floors, uh, uh, offices or whatever, are filled. Rents are a lot lower than in Iowa well, City. All right, so that, I'm yes. simply wondering why that was. So this yeah, has I mean, I've got friends who looked all over Iowa City to open a retail spot, and when they looked at what they could find and what the rents were, they wanted to be in Iowa City, and they ended up on Fifth Street in Coralville because they could get hmm. kind of yeah, space they wanted for a significantly lower rent. Exactly. So, and there's the the comment I would. Yeah. Uh, follow up with you, Rockney, with your comments on the getting information, if that's possible, and, and maybe Martha Norbeck would be a good source, I don't know, on, on some of this in terms of the height of the buildings and, and your comments, Jim, about the energy it takes to build them. The question, though, that I would, or information I think related to that that's really important is when you do start looking at these taller buildings, and when I say taller, I mean you're going tall enough that you're doing a lot of glass and steel, you know, that type of construction. Mm -hmm. So you're really looking at a, a type of construction that's an 80, 100 plus year building. And so when you look at that and, and the density that you get, you know, and how many units do you get and how much energy and how much energy it takes to build it, but also the fact that you're not rebuilding it every 50 years. And, and I think that also 
so I think that would be interesting information because I don't know. Common sense tells me that if you're if you're going that much taller, and you've got that potentially that much more longevity in a building, that that potential additional energy cost of building it, which I don't know how much that is, may be offset. Secondly, when you have land that is expensive because of its proximity to downtown, it would seem to me it makes more sense to build more dense on that property because really then your, your cost per square foot may be higher with the land, but how much is it related to the actual number of units? So if you're building, you know, 100 units versus 25 or 30 units, you know, is that cost per square foot of the land really higher per unit, or is it does it end up being lower? I mean, obviously the land, yes, if somebody knows they can build a 15-story building, they're willing to pay more for that plot of land than if they can only build a five-story building. But is the cost per square foot as related to the units more expensive? What, my point there was just yes. that if I, if I own this piece of land down there, mm -hmm. When do I sell it? it? It was that point in time that I was focusing on that, yeah, if I see, well, if I just wait, I, I might, maybe my property will be part of a 15-story building project, and mm -hmm. that's a whole lot money, more money for me. So I'll just wait for that project. So, mm -hmm. so that's more the issue. You know, look at um, the Euronymous property, how, lo how long that was vacant. It wasn't vacant because we were in, you know, a city that had a hollowed out downtown. It was waiting for the project. Yeah, right? and they hit some economic issues yeah. too. So, with you know, all sorts of complications. Yeah. Um, a, a couple of other things. I, since we're on the topic of the riverfront crossings, you know, and the focus was on, on the Opticoast review, but, you know, Jim, you mentioned the parks and, you know, that aspect of the, the, the the you know the sense of network of green streets and parks and so forth. I think we've fallen short on that aspect of it. Um, you know, I hope we can revisit that. You know, that that's something that we pay more attention to. I'm really pleased that we're now looking at the transportation piece because I think that's going to have a significant impact on land value too. All of a sudden, you can live at the south end of the, of the Riverfront Crossings District and get to downtown in five minutes on a bus, that suddenly makes that part of the district far more um, appealing, I think. Uh, so, so there's the open space. Um, and then another question I had was, could TIF be used? You know, we've typically used it to finance, to help finance projects, but it's also used to finance the public realm, you know, the, the enhancements that serve a public benefit. And I don't know if we've, if there's ever been conversation as, as to how we might direct that increment to moving and advancing our public realm improvements uh, in addition to private projects. I'd like to pick up on Rockney's point, uh, only to ask, uh, to suggest that we direct this question about the energy efficiency of higher density and taller buildings, direct it to the, our new commission, yeah. and ask them for their advice. Yeah. Yep, sure. I agree with that. So maybe staff can make sure that happens. 
Okay, any other comment? Okay, if not, we'll move ahead to to our clarification of agenda items. Can I just, before we before we move on, I just want to sure. make sure expectations on turnaround are, are well known. This is not something that we plan to come back to, to you on in, in 2019. We'll take this feedback, but this would be a 2020 exercise. Mm -hmm. Is everybody comfortable yeah. with that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I have agenda AXC. items? Yeah, go ahead. I guess uh, I want to ask Jeff about ATC uh, is amending budget position for transportation service. Um, is that, this is just one person or more than one person because I see the price of that, like how much it costs and all this. It's one person. Darian can explain uh, what the Please. goal is here. Hi there, Darian Dangle-Gam, Transportation Services. So this, um, is relating to an operations specialist position, which is our evening coverage, um, which uh, was recently vacated, which prompted a review of the position. Um, it's just one position. Um, we had um, one operations specialist during the evening hours and the rest of our administrative staff is an operations supervisor. And um, due to that vacation of the position, we've really taken a look at um, the position as a whole and have determined that we think that the city and the department would benefit from having an operations supervisor in the evening position. The specialist more or less functioned as an answer point and helped us put out those fires um, that we needed to in the evening, but really wasn't able to, um, by right of the position, wasn't able to um, do a lot of the administrative things that we needed from the position. Um, dealing with the administrative tasks, facilitating projects, and really directing the staff as a supervisor would. So this um, not only would allow them to, to handle those tasks um, related to the position, it would also enable, excuse me, enable them to function on a full-time basis with us, which would allow for better collaboration between the daytime staff and the nighttime staff, because we are basically about 24-7 um, Say for a few hours in the evening, and and there was a there was sort of a gap and a discontinuity between our daytime and our evening staff. So that's another reason um, we were looking at making this a full time potential position under an operations supervisor role. Ah, great. And my other question is: This is will conclude our third position that we need to convert, or no? This this is already a permanent position. We're just adding hours to a permanent position. Okay, and uh, are we still having another position that we're going to convert? No, we've we've converted the three hourly positions already. Uh, we have uh, animal services, engineering, and se senior center. Okay, but one of them was one position, there is two positions, you're gonna still hire another. I guess maybe I'm wrong. The engineering position was filled with two half-time half hourlies. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, we're moving to one full-time permanent. Sure, and when we discussed this in the beginning, we said, yeah, we are moving those three positions. We agreed to make those three positions permanent and you equate them. And to me, I, I still want to highlight that we chosen the position that have least, uh, like, few people, one or two people. And that's really, you know, just don't make me happy because we try to give people, as much people as we can, health insurance. That was the main, you know, 
reason for doing this, and out of uh, 37 position, 37 people, we're converting only like four or five uh, people to be permanent positions so they can health, health, have some health insurance. My question is, while just if also remind me if I'm wrong, while we said we need three positions, we said uh, with the budget for next year, we would like you to come up. We, we need to revisit this again, the rest of them. Correct. Mm -hmm. We're still going to do that. Yes. So part of our budget presentation, we'll list out the cost of converting the remaining positions, and you all can decide if you want to do that. Um, my, I won't go into all the details, but my decision on those three positions uh, were largely due to current staffing in those positions. So the engineering position, again, we had two hourly positions that filled the full day. One of those was already vacant. Uh, and then with the senior center, we had that that hourly position was also vacant, uh, so it's it's allowed us to move quicker on that on, on that particular one, and then animal services. Um, that was probably where we had the most urgent need um, to get a permanent staff there. Just from op for operational support purposes, that's where uh, I saw the most value. And we coupled that with a reclassification. So there was kind of a larger shift of positions and responsibilities in animal services. And we felt that that was better done sooner rather than later. So, But yeah, but yeah the council clearly directed to have this uh, the rest of the positions discussed during the budget. And we'll be prepared to do that. Sure, yeah. I'm glad it's happening, and I'm glad it's coming back later yeah thank you I'd like to mention item 10d which is in the late handout I don't know if you had a chance to look at it but it's an email from Jamie McCoy on behalf of citizens climate lobby I think requesting that we adopt a resolution endorsing the bipartisan energy innovation and carbon dividends act which is a piece of legislation in Congress active in Congress right now uh, and he provided a lot of background information about that, you know, details about uh, the content of the legislation or of the bill, that, uh, the EICD bill. <laughs> I, I think I've said before, I don't see how we can achieve our 2050 goal without sound legislation at the national level. And, and this thing has... I think it has legs. I've been tracking it for two years now, and there are something like 70 uh, supporters who have signed on as co-sponsors in the House. It's a bipartisan bill. There's been a, uh, it, it's a, sort of a marriage of uh, earlier bills, one of which was put together by former Secretary of Treasurer, Secretary of the Treasury, George Schultz, and other conservative economists. Uh, so my sense is that this really has legs, and what uh, Citizens Climate Lobby is trying to do is is mobilize support for it. And I know that Jamie has asked the County Board of Supervisors to adopt a similar resolution. Uh, so uh, I simply wonder if you agree that we should adopt a resolution that is based very close to this, the model resolution that he provides, but we could probably just tweak it a little bit to, to make it uh, directly related to uh, to what we've already done. Okay. Sounds I, good to me. Well, I guess I would suggest that given that this came in the late handouts, and I certainly haven't had a chance to look at it or look at the link, I'd like us to maybe talk about this at our next meeting just mm -hmm. to 
give us a chance really to look at it in more detail before making a decision. I'm inclined to agree uh, with doing it, and I know Jamie's called me and I haven't had a chance to talk to him about it, but I would just like a little more chance to re time to review it before actually making a decision, if people don't I, object. I think it's a lot to it, um, and I think that's a fair request. I, I did have a little chance to go through it, um, and, and the things that you're talking about as far as having legs. I was a little worried about the socioeconomic uh, aspect that it, you know, could have on um, uh, the financials of, of uh, certain certain individuals, but um, after learning more and reading some literature, which Jamie has provided, um, I'm I'm comfortable with um, with moving forward with this. But I would agree, more time to just digest it a little more would be great. Uh, if you if you all agree, then uh, I'll just ask staff to put this on our agenda, work session agenda for next, uh, for the November 5th meeting, 4th meeting. Monday the 4th. Yeah, so we can all have the same information. Thank you. Sounds good to me. Appreciate it. Okay, good deal. Mm -hmm. sure. Anything else on the agenda? No. For me. Yeah, I think I want to mention item 12B, which is a setting of public, no, I'm sorry, it's the rezoning for Prentice Street, and, and all I want to refer to is, um, well, two things, actually, but what I, first thing I want to refer to is uh, 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 an email that Martha Norbeck sent us concerning reimagining transportation in Iowa City, <coughs> and I, I, I doubt that we can actually we can act on it because it's it would be changing the rules in midstream for that particular project. But it there's there, there's substantive interest there. Are you do y'all recognize what I'm referring to here? This thing from Martha. It really had to do with bicycles and whatever. Yeah. Well, the parking requirement yeah. is. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. Uh, that was a question I had for the project was what is the parking requirement that's generating the uh, supply we're providing there? Is it X number of stalls per unit? Do we? Ratio per bed, I think, isn't it? So it's been NDS. So the parking requirement for vehicles is based on bedroom counts and yeah. proportions of parking stalls per bedroom. Is it, is it different in? Central crossings than in the South Downtown District? Um, no, I believe they're fairly similar similar throughout the riverfront crossings. They're less than elsewhere in town except for in, in the immediate downtown. Well, again, I doubt that we can alter the rules midstream for this particular project, but if we're looking ahead and asking ourselves how much parking must we require from new buildings uh, in, at least in the Riverfront Crossings District, there's some pretty interesting suggestions in what Martha's provided us. I think that's going to be a huge issue. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, another related question. We, uh, am I correct that we have not received a signed CZA for that? Uh, we are expecting it. I don't know that we've received it yet. We were told today that we would be receiving it either before five, I don't think that happened, or maybe they're gonna bring it to the meeting. I see Ann was here and she's not here now, so maybe <laughs> maybe she went to get it or something, I don't know. Hmm. We had not received it electronically before 5 p.m., so if they're going to turn it in, we'd expect to see it in person. 
Uh, okay. There were some last minute discussions. Um, if it does happen, we will give you the red line version of the, the CZ. Yeah, okay. 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 Uh, shall we move ahead to the information packet? So the first one, there's hardly anything in it. Any comments on the October 3rd packet? Uh, how about the October 10th? I do. I think I have one question about the January 2nd organizational meeting. Hmm. It starts at 8 a.m. What is the time commitment there? Depends on how long it takes mm. us to elect a mayor and a mayor pro tem and okay. to agree upon uh, assignments to committees. Okay. I just wanted to... It's been anywhere from five minutes to maybe an hour and a half. Okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> it's not January 1st, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make so, sure it's on your calendar. Yeah, Rocky yeah I know. I know. It's the only one. All right. IP number eight has to do with KXIC radio interviews. I would like to volunteer for two of those interviews unless people say no, Jim, one's enough. So uh, <laughs> the first would be for November the 6th, and the second would be for the, the last one, November, December the 18th. I'll take November 13th. I'd like the 20th. I'll take December 4th. November 27th and December 11th, or left. I could do December 11th. What, what's left? November 27th. Who had the 13th? I did. Oh, Susan. Okay, oh, I thought you were the 20th. No. Nope. Um, so November 27th. Mazda, I know that that no. is around the holiday, but no. they record. Yeah. Oh, can't. Okay, so I can do the 27th. Okay, mm -hmm. there we go. Okay. I'd like to ask about IP number 12, which has to do with the census. I wonder if Ashley could summarize for us the advice that the Census Bureau is giving us about this internet-based thing. Okay. Uh, this year is, or I should say 2020 will be the first U.S. Census conducted um, using online platform to allow people to submit their census information. So uh, residents will be able to submit through their personal computers, mobile devices, tablets. Um, and so when people submit, uh, their information is encrypted, and the U.S. Census Bureau has its own uh, department of technicians that is specializing in keeping our data secure. Uh, they've got a lot of different firewalls, and in addition, there's a legal obligation by the Census Bureau to keep everything secure. So census takers, so the people out in the neighborhoods, um, going and visiting addresses that have not yet responded to the census. They'll be using cell phone devices to submit any given census information. So um, they'll use their, the mobile devices provided by the Census Bureau to record information. And so when it's submitted, that information becomes encrypted. Uh, after it's submitted by the census taker, the information is deleted from that device. So there's there's not necessarily a risk of, of information being stored on the census taker's device. 
Um, if there was to be a, a concern over a lost device before that information is submit, submitted to the Census Bureau, they have the ability to um, pull any information off of that device so it's not going to be in the hands of, of any other person. Um, the Census Bureau also wants to remind us not to respond to emails that are claiming to be from the Census Bureau. Um, they will not, if they do have census emails that are going out, they, the Census Bureau is communicating through email. However, they will not be asking you for your social security number, your bank accounts, your credit card information, or for money or donations. Um, don't open attachments from people who claim to be the Census Bureau. Uh, lastly, the URL, the Census Bureau is going to be providing information to our residents about mid-March. They'll start sending information to each address with information about how to respond to the census. Their URL will be secure. You'll look for that HTTPS uh, to make sure it's a secure site when you're going to the address they give you. and. Uh, people can respond in that way. So the city will be communicating uh, more and more about the census as we get closer to the census date. So probably you'll see a lot of information come the beginning of the year and and onward. So if people have questions about you know, the validity of, of requests being made uh, about any kind of census information, they can always contact us. They can visit our icgov.org slash census uh, website. So our information matches all the other communities in our area. Um, we're, we're taking great care to make sure that we're coordinating as a region for uh, viable and accurate census information. Is that, is that good summary? It is. Thank good. you so much. Very good. Uh, on a related point, I, I would like to observe that it's my understanding that a substantial number of scam phone calls are coming from somebody claiming to be Social Security. I know I have one. Yeah, so it's really important not to, not to respond, not to phone back. Uh, just uh, I don't know, give it a <laughs> throw it away. I do wonder um, if the school district could kind of be alerted of of this, and they can share it with their students, and it can be a point of conversation they could have with their parents? The school district uh, and our complete count census committee are working together, awesome. so we'll make sure that efforts are coordinated. Uh, the Census Bureau has just recently been taking, uh, great, making great effort to incorporate some educational component with the Census Bureau and our school districts, so uh, hopefully more and more schools take take them up on that offer and provide additional information. Thank you. Okay, any other items on that information packet? IP 13, I'd like to thank Austin and Charlotte, you can uh, send my thanks and you were probably part of this too, the uh, 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 rental study uh, guide, because uh, I know it must have taken a lot of work to compile all of the survey results and uh, it's certainly easy to see which units continue to cause the most headaches for renters and and I, I've said before, it, it's sad to see that because it can leave a bad impression on, on these students in, uh, of Iowa City. This is uh, the impression they leave with of Iowa City are these uh, landlords that have treated them poorly. Um, 
a couple of items stood out. Uh, one that always stands out, of course, and we recently received uh, correspondence regarding the uh, withholding of the security deposits. 25% uh, reported receiving none of their deposit back. That's that's very alarming. That can be a lot of money for, for a student, especially one that's graduating, getting out with student debt. And I myself was a victim of this over 40 years ago. That was a long time ago. So this has been going on for a long time. Uh, and it, it needs to be discouraged somehow, strongly discouraged. We need to let these uh, landlords know that, that this is not an option. This is not right. Um, it needs to happen at the state level. State of, Can exactly. state of Kansas. I mean, we can't on the city, but no. Yeah. State of Kansas has some of the best laws on the books about renter, landlord. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I dealt with that when my sons were at the University of Kansas. And it was great. And they actually have advocates out there, too, that you can call, and they help inform you of the rules. And hmm. I mean, with theirs, it, it's really nice. If you don't do a walkthrough, if the, if the renter and the landlord or a landlord representative don't do a walkthrough and do a checkoff of an inspection within three days of moving in, landlords cannot keep any part of your le of your deposit, no matter what the condition of the apartment. Oh. I mean, so it requires them to take some time, but it has to be done jointly, and both parties have to sign off on it. That's and great. it makes a huge difference. And there's a number of other things, but it's done at the state level in Kansas, and it's very helpful. And It'd be nice if we could get our state that, legislature yeah. to do some things. So too. that might be something then. That's a good point, Susan, that uh, we can add to our lobbyist list to, to look for and encourage, strongly encourage at the state level, because uh, that, that is, that, it is a big deal. I think right now when, you're, when we're talking about the, the mobile homes, and how that spike went up, I think now would be a, a great opportunity to, to you know, share some of the stories that we're having here with legislators and trying to see uh, throughout the state other um, cities and municipalities wanting to you know, join board on that. The other item that, that <clears throat> stood out uh, in light of all of our climate action discussions, it was concerning that 35.8% um, reported that recycling was not provided in their dwelling. And I think this percent will need to increase if we, as a community, uh, will try to be achieving our, our climate action goals. Yeah, thank you so much for pointing out those um, statistics. I was also going to do the same, so thank you for uh, starting me off there. In the move-in checklist, there are um, members of student government who are lobbying for that at the, the state level, so hopefully that's something we can accomplish in the next year. Um, and if I could, I'd also like to share, I don't know if any of you had a chance to look through some of the comments that students submitted, but I think that that's, um, you know, actually hearing their own stories is something that's very, um, important and so uh, invaluable. And so I just wanted to read um, a few that just uh, stood out to me, if I could, real quick. Um, so this student's apartment company did not clean their apartment prior to move in, as they stated that they would in our lease. There was dirt, dust, and grime everywhere, and light fixtures were burnt out. Um, Another student said they are very inconsiderate. Overall lack of communication and consideration for the renter. You are just a number with a bank account to them. Um, when we moved in, one of our toilets didn't work. They did not come to fix it for six weeks. There were also safety hazards when we moved in. Our fume hood on our stove was hanging by a piece of duct tape. And I mean, it goes on and on. There's lots of complaints about snow removal and you know icy sidewalks. And um, but yeah, if you hadn't had a chance, I'd recommend looking through these comments because it's it's kind of horrifying when you see the conditions that that students have to live in. But yeah, thank you for pointing that out. And hopefully, we can keep these things in mind moving forward. 
Yeah, I was really planning to talk about the same thing, but I guess you guys cover it all. But I just want to say this is not only facing the student. A lot, you know, residents come to the Center sure. for Worker Justice and tell us the same thing. And, you know, this is like everywhere. And as Susan said, this is not something that we can do here. And if it can be changed at the, city, at the state level, it will be great. But uh, for meanwhile, I guess uh, we encourage some people to go on because they have like a lot. It was like two months deposit because their credit wasn't good. That's why they asked them to do two months. And that's like a lot of money. Uh, we encourage them to go and do like a small claim court. They did and they recover their money. And also, uh, you know, the legal aid, uh, IOCT legal aid also like great on that too. You know, encourage people for now at least to use those kind of two things uh, until we our best registration came the law. Yeah. Would the rest of you agree that we would like uh, um, to direct staff to treat this as a legislative priority? Yes. I would agree. Yes. Sure. In terms yes. of uh, seeing what can be done, you know, because we know the chances are not very good that this legislature would adopt it, but. Hmm. Uh, still, I think there's, right. I would say there's value in stating it, it's one of our legislative objectives to support our students and other renters in having a, a basically fair relationship with their landlords, especially with regard to the condition of the unit before they move in and the condition after they move in or, you know, after the, when they're departing. And a little ray of hope, though, too, and I'll get to it when we give an update on our mobile home task force. State Senator Walls indicated there are some issues that he thinks in terms of that context and mobile homes that we'll maybe be able to get some movement on. So, and he tended to say that the procedural protections seem to be more favorable. So maybe we're not totally tilting at windmills on this. I think it is good to just sort of lodge it because you never know, maybe two or three um, sessions down the road it will get through. Yeah. I want to go through uh, IB7. I just would like to thank the staff for reaching out to Kirkwood. And uh, I, I think this is great. They're asking about Social Security, but it's not required to, even if you don't have it, you still can be able to take the English classes. This is really awesome. And also, I would like to ask about IB11, if the city manager can tell us, like, uh, how do you think this is would affect Iowa City for the, the letter from article? What is it? It is, yeah. It's from Ashley. Yeah, it is from Ashley, I guess, not from the city. Yeah. Yes. It's the ICU. Yeah. Yeah. You want to take it? Okay, either way. It, it's, um, this is a, a publication from ICMA, which is our professional association in, in the city management industry. Um, we just thought that this was, uh, well, one, it references Iowa City in the opening statement, uh, so they do scans of news articles to see which cities are working on, on different topics, and, and since we were highlighted in kind of a national publication, we shared it with you. Uh, but, but hopefully you see some of those survey results, and they, you know, part of what, the reason we do this is to make sure you know you're not alone in your, in your climate yeah. efforts. Um, you know, it, it can feel at times you might be if you don't see um, immediately, you know, cities immediately surrounding you taking the same action. But if you just broaden your perspective a little bit and look at what's going on throughout the country, particularly in university towns, you'll, you'll quickly realize that uh, we have a lot of partners in our climate action efforts. So this article and um, the, the one from Moody's is trying to paint that picture, whereas, you know, um, that this is a, a really a, a national issue that's being looked at from many different angles um, throughout the country. Okay. 
IP14, the uh, ICAD annual report, uh, reading through it, I was I was pleased to see that there's a section on uh, inclusiveness yes. and that they are uh, seeking to attract uh, underrepresented uh, candidates for employment uh, as well as to connect minorities to internship programs. And I, yeah. I think that that's a really... I agree. It was really interesting article. You yeah, know, that, I, was, that was good I was to see. That stood out for too. me. Yeah. yeah. Any other items? Uh, IP9. I did. I did make it to the tree planting event at Horace Mann this morning. It was a wonderful event. Um, it was. It was triggered by Earl May's hundredth anniversary, and so they paid for the the trees and did the installation. They did a wonderful job. Uh, City Channel Four was there as well, so there will be a a piece generated by that. I think the star of the show, and aside from the trees, which are really nice specimens were the kindergartners who came out uh, and uh, kind of participated or observed the planting, and um, they were just wonderful. So it was, uh, all in all, a, a really wonderful way to spend a beautiful fall morning. Yep. Okay, moving on to the last item, council updates on the sign boards, commissions, and committees. Uh, we can start with John and move to the left. Oh, nothing to report. Um, we just concluded another with the City of Literature, the City of Literature Festival. I think the city can be very proud in terms of what was achieved with John Kenyon. Really, really great things. Um, I don't know if this counts, but the Mobile Home Task Force, we're continuing to meet on that. And I'm very pleased with the progress we're making in a relatively short period of time. Essentially, what the committee is doing is, is we, and by the way, we've been getting some great input from Johnson County, um, from North Liberty. Um, we have task force members, City of Coralville, is that the task Force Committee is going to essentially give a set of recommendations for each municipality to go back and consider based upon their own individual unique circumstances. So, you know, one of the things that Councilor Botchway had done a lot on when he was here is this concept of the diversity checklist, that we're going through things to sort of update that. And so really what we're looking at with our mobile home policy is sort of look at what are maybe some issues that maybe have been overlooked, and with the tools that we have, what are some things proactively we can do, both with the nonprofit, with the city, um, with the county, and what are more regional approaches that we can take. So sort of stay tuned for that. We're going to get a nice substantive report um, for this council and for future councils to review. So I'm very proud of the progress we're going to make or that we have made. And we look, we're looking to get a final draft report. We pretty much have the draft report almost done. We're going to get that out in November. So we hope to drop that at least an information pack, and it's going to be some good substantive review um, in light of what's been happening. One kernel of information we've been looking at with um, some of the legal clinic, um, some of the land values in terms of what the assessed value is and what the purchase price is. And we're seeing purchase prices double the assessed value. So there's a significant spike in terms of what the assessed value is. And like we're going to try to process sort of what that's going to mean in terms of future policy. Um, but those numbers really do jump off the page. And of course, we'll attach those uh, in an appendix um, for further council review. But we'll get that out shortly. Great. Yeah, um, uh, we haven't met, but uh, he reported on the tax force, and I guess I don't have anything else. We did have our joint government, our joint entities meeting yesterday, um, and that was here at uh, City Hall. Um, I know that there was a good thing that we learned about North Liberty, which was very exciting that they're going to be using Yellow Cap 
um, um, to subsidize uh, for their transportation needs for individuals within their communities. So that was very exciting to hear because we know that's been a challenge for the North Liberty with them not having any type of public transportation. So that's very exciting to hear. I know that um, we've talked about one topic today that I do think in the future we would probably want to consider putting it on the, the agenda and that would be the legislative priority for renter law. Um, at the state level, so that might be something that we want to consider. And the other thing that uh, Ma suggested yesterday, but I also thought that that would have to be a council decision if we wanted to maybe put it on the agenda, and that would be affordable housing, uh, be a topic. Um, just, and I'm not sure how that would ac exactly look, what would be the topic, but um, if it would be uh, maybe having um, Jones County Trust. Um, Housing trust fund. Housing trust fund come and talk or something like, or having a little bit, or or giving some, but but definitely having a topic of discussion on affordable housing. So for the joint um, meetings, Bruce. For the joint okay. meeting, just informational. Um, so yeah, I think that um, we had a great time yesterday, and then next meeting will be January thirteenth, and that'll be at North Liberty City Hall. Uh, Rockney did a, a good job of uh, talking about the uh, Affordable Housing Coalition Mobile Home Task Force. Uh, as he said, uh, we did uh, this meeting review a draft of, of the final report, which listed the goals and consideration of what municipalities can do, which is why, as he mentioned, you might be wondering, well, why is he going to include that in an information packet? But it is something, and it'll be an opportunity for um, the different municipalities, North Liberty, Coralville, Iowa City, uh, Shuiville, Swisher, they were all represented, uh, to discuss what uh, can be done to, to protect the, this very vulnerable group of, of um, our community members. So it will be important to take a look at that. To be continued. Mm -hmm. um, the Access Center, <laughs> we had a name. <laughs> we don't have a name anymore. <laughs> Matt may have mentioned that yesterday. I couldn't make it to the joint meeting yet. Uh, don't say the word. We can't say the word. Right? Yeah, the na no, I know. The, na the, na the name's gone, so we're looking for a new one. If there's a trademark issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They supposedly had done some research, but it came back and bit them. <laughs> so looking for a new name. That was too bad. <laughs> and we also, uh, it related to that, um, working on the 20AE agreements, and I know um, I've got a meeting with staff to do some review on the 20AE agreement um, near the end of the month. So those things are moving forward. Very good. Okay, I think we're done with our work session. I have nothing to say with regard to this. Well, we made it. We'll get back together at 7. <laughs>